The Startup to Scale Up Game Plan is brought to you by Alpina Search, Europe's premier talent search firm, dedicated to helping technology startups and scale-ups recruit high-impact executives. Now over to your host, Gary Riemann. I'm delighted to welcome John Prido, CEO at Boku, who at the end of November IPO'd on the AIM stock market in London at an initial valuation of 125 million sterling, and they quickly popped to a 160 million valuation. Boku's platform brings merchants and mobile operators together to transform 5 billion mobile phone subscribers into the world's largest pool of customers. That's way more users than Visa and MasterCard combined. So John, I'm delighted to welcome you to this week's show. Well, Gary, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. So John, how did you come to join Boku and how did you eventually become the uh, company CEO? Um, well, it was it's a long story. I mean, it started off when I was involved with a, um, I, I'm sorry, I suppose I'd been in a corporate job for quite some time at Visa, where I was sort of the EVP looking after product and marketing. And I left there in 2006 and I was casting around for a few other things to be doing. And, and one of the projects that I got involved with was a company that eventually became Paymo. And ultimately, um, I, and I became an advisor to the CEO there, uh, helped him as he was setting up the business, whilst I was also involved with other projects at the same time. Uh, Paymo was taken over by Boku uh, when Boku was founded in 2009. And I had expected, frankly, at that point, as any other advisor to a target company to be sort of fired. But I was invited to lunch. And I thought, well, at least I get a lunch out of it before I get fired. But I got on very well with Mark Brito, Brito who was the founder of um, Boku. And um, he decided to keep me around as an advisor. And then in 2012, when various other business projects and, um, that I was working on had concluded and, and I was looking for another opportunity, that gave me um, you know, the opportunity to come on to the staff here at, uh, at Boku, where I started as the chief business officer, ultimately becoming the um, ultimately becoming the the CEO in um, in in 2014. So interesting that you at some point had to uh, replace the founder CEO in 2014. Uh, talk me through that process and what were the challenges that you faced or that the company faced in replacing the founder CEO. Um, look, I think these things in other companies sort of can go badly, but it was a sort of very sort of planned process. It's something that Mark and I had discussed for quite some time. It wasn't one of those situations where eek VCs see this, the founders, the CEO and think, oh, we need somebody else in the room. So it was there was no conflict, there was no difficulty that you sometimes read about in these type of situations. It was a very sort of smooth progression. I actually had... I would say I've had had a greater sort of mind meld with Mark when it comes to views about business than with anybody else, frankly, in my career. So it was a very, very smooth handoff from one to another. Uh, I think from his perspective, I would say, you know, in some senses, it may have been more difficult from his perspective than it was for mine, because in large measure, you know, I was going away performing particular tasks in my role as the chief business officer. And it was a fairly seamless transition for me from chief business officer to CEO. Um, as chief business officer, I was involved with you know, most aspects of the company in any case. 
I suppose for Mark, it was more of a challenge of him sort of stepping back. And I sort of want to pay him the compliment of saying that he made it very, very easy. It would have been simple for him to have continued to be involved at an operational level, you know, perhaps, uh, you know, and perhaps undermining what other people in the organization would be thinking about, about me and my performance. And he was, you know, he judged that really well. I mean, Mark continues to be the chairman here at Bogu to this day, and we have a We've always had an excellent working relationship. And as I said uh, previously, I got on with him from the first time we met when I was this advisor expecting to get fired right up to now, um, where he's uh, my chairman and I'm the CEO. And it works for it really, very, very well. So personality fit and the original founder not having too big an ego seem to be two key criteria here to making that transition work so effectively. I think that's really putting it well. I think that um, that's exactly the point. I think neither of us had sort of huge egos. And from my perspective, you know, it wasn't something that I was sort of banging on the door for. It was something that seemed like a logical transition, given the sort of skills um, that I could bring to the table to help the company to grow. It was really very much um, in our discussions and, you know, in my mind as well, you know, what can be done better to serve the company and the mission that we want to try to achieve. It wasn't about sort of personal ambition for me and it wasn't about sort of personal ambition for him either. It was really about what's the best thing for the company. Good stuff. So tell me, why has Boku been so successful on the global stage? <laughs> well, as they say, I mean, there's the old one about the swans sort of swimming smoothly across the surface and the feet paddling beneath. I mean, I think anyone who is running an organization that goes from a startup to an IPO you know, they were very lucky if it starts with the kind of dropout from Harvard, you know, shack up in your parents' garage, and then a few months later, you're ringing the bell at, you know, at the stock exchange. I mean, the, the, the journey from the bottom left to the top right is not a straightforward one. And there are always circumstances where you know, things could have been different. I mean, we, I think, made some good decisions about the market we're involved with and the fundamentals that you talked about in your, in your introduction. I mean, there are more phones than there are you know, bank accounts in the world. And you know, those phones are isolated in different sort of islands of mobile network operators. It's almost as if they were seeking an organization at Boku to bring them together so that the funds stored within those phones, either as a prepaid balance or as a, uh, you know, or, or just a line of credit given through the phone bill could be made accessible to, to digital merchants. And I guess we were just the ones that we managed to sort of crack the code to, to make that happen. And you know, were able to recruit and sign up some of the world's largest merchants to do it. And that definitely meant you know, thinking global from the start, you know, understanding this is something that could be really you know, big, and um, you know, making sure that we had the resources and the team and the vision to do it. You've created a strong culture um, globally, even though you've got this very um, hands-off approach to where people work and, and so on. So how have you, how have you pulled together such a strong culture with uh, so many remote workers globally? Um, I, I wish I could bottle it, and I, I really knew. I mean, there are a few things. I, I, and I like to think that there is a sort of a Boku person. And the first thing to say is that you know, Boku has got about 150 people. You know, about 50 of those are in San Francisco. Um, about sort of 40-ish are in Mumbai, 20-ish in London. Um, about uh, 10, 12 or so in Munich, and the rest sort of scattered in various other offices, such as sort of uh, Tokyo, Beijing, 
Riga, Paris, um, Milan, um, Sao Paulo, so literally all over the world. And some of those people would just be in onesies and twosies. So you mentioned about you know, the kind of you know, work from home policy if you want to. The challenge in terms of creating a culture is not just that the people are in the same time zone speaking the same native language um, in one country. I mean, far from it. We're spread across time zones. We're spread across countries. We're spread across cultures. And um, you know, to be able to create a, a sort of a global feeling about what it means to be in Boku has been quite important. Lots and lots of communication, uh, some common practices that sit around the world, um, common tools that, through which people can you know, communicate with each other, a reasonable amount of inter-office um, uh, travel, um, something as trivial as color schemes. I mean, I think, it, you know, orange is our color. And it's good for when people when one office can come into another one and they can see it painted orange. I mean, those things I think are important. Uh, and I think a particular challenge for us as an organization in cultural terms came not when we were growing organically, where people can somehow sort of get the, the, the Boku treatment, but when we made you know, a number of acquisitions and the first acquisition uh, of, of size that we made once the company itself had been founded from this sort of roll up um, that I described earlier, the first acquisition that we made was in India with a company called CubeCell. And I'll be honest, I don't think we really got it right. I mean, and for a while, the, we were very lucky that the, the people who came into the organization at that time sort of gave us some indulgence. And it wasn't until, I don't know, some time had elapsed that we really managed to sort of work together in order to be effective. And now I'm, I'm really delighted at the way in which our Mumbai operation uh, has, is going. I always get very, very invigorated when I get there and they're a strong motor for our culture. Um, the second sort of large acquisition we did was uh, of a company that was formerly our largest competitor, Mope, and, and, and working out how we could all be sort of Boku and look for, forward to the future was, I think, a, a very, very significant management challenge. And I'm you know, very proud of the way in which the whole company now has come together and does have this sort of common approach and culture. That Mumbai acquisition that, that uh, faced some challenges what are the lessons that you learned from from that and what have you done differently subsequent to that initial acquisition? <laughs> These things don't look after themselves. I mean, it's, it's a statement of the bleeding obvious, if you like. But if you want to really properly to integrate, then you really need to put some effort in it. Um, I think you know when we try to apply some of those la lessons later, when we um, came together with Mope, um, the first thing that I said to everybody at the, you know, uh, who hadn't been with Mope or I with, with Boku is I, I sort of forbade people from saying us and them, that the, the people were not allowed to say them, it's we. We weren't allowed to talk about sort of the Mope this, the Mope that, it's our system. And so just really sort of reinforcing sort of even sort of things in speech that we weren't allowed to sort of create an us and them culture. I was absolutely determined to make sure that that didn't happen. And um, you know, frankly, it led to quite a lot of circumlocution as when you try to you know, describe functional things where you have to be able to talk about the system that had formerly um, belonged to, 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 to MOPE. And we were talking about the Munich, Munich office system and so on. But I think that really started to hammer home to people that it, what, you know, we could not have you know, separate um, you know, feelings about what, we, what, what you know, we thought about our new colleagues coming in um, to us uh, who, who are based in Munich. 
I think the other thing that we did is, is I arranged very, very quickly for everybody to get the new email address. And you couldn't, you know, your email address is the new business card. And you couldn't have uh, people who we were welcoming into the family of Boku just going around using an email address that's proclaiming they're from somewhere else. Those type of small things you know, are, are important and they serve to reinforce. Then I think you needed to have a clear plan. You needed to work together with people um, as you went through the integration process and to try to make sure that you, you really did have a best of the best culture. And you know, over time, um, uh, you know, as the, sort of the, the language sort of reinforced the actions and the actions reinforced the language, we were able to build a common culture out of the whole thing. But it took a lot of time, and, and I just don't think that I gave sufficient effort the first time around when we, when we purchased uh, you know, CubeCell in, in 2012. And you know, say eventually, I think we did get it right, but that was really thanks to the tolerance that some of our employees in Mumbai were kind enough to show us. Okay, some great lessons learned there, and uh, some uh, some useful uh, changes in in the way you approached those situations subsequently. Let's let's talk about what must have been a huge learning for you and a huge experience for you and the whole leadership team. Um, you've just emerged from. Uh, an IPO, a very successful IPO, as we mentioned at the start of this uh, of this conversation. You you were initially valued at 125 million. You've already popped up to about 160 million. Um, how did you plan for that IPO? What were some of the key challenges you had in successfully IPOing on on AIM? Um, well, I mean, this podcast is called sort of startup to scale up, and I suppose we've we've travelled that journey. And I think when you're a startup, you, you know, you're used to doing things in a certain way. And I won't go always back to the beginning, but one of the things you do as a startup is you have to raise money and you are quite used to the way in which you interact you're together with uh, private investors. And you have a style, if you're able to survive, that is you know, capable of being able to, to resonate with, with the sort of things that private investors are looking for. And I think one of the big learning points was that it's all rather different in the public market context as opposed to the private market context. I mean, the private investor um, is buying a dream, or at least he's buying a dream when he's looking into the startup. I mean, he looks at the numbers and pretty much every private investor is going to discount to some extent the numbers that the, the startup uh, founder or CEO is going to present to him because you'll think there's a certain amount of wishful thinking in it. But what he's really looking for is the quality of the management to try to understand that the the, the market that you're going after is sound, that the quality of execution will be pretty good. But he understands that a startup is a learning organism and that, you know, it won't exactly go the way in which people plan. And however precise the, you know, the, 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 the spreadsheet is, it, it, you know, translating that into reality is kind of tough. And so, you know, that, that predisposes towards a certain style of, of, of presenting towards, um, you know, private investors. In the public markets, people are after a lot more in terms of predictability. I mean, the worst crime you can do is to miss your, you know, your, your projections or your numbers. And so there is a desire to somehow sort of understate rather than over, understate what it is you can achieve rather than overstate, um, which is more of a private factor. And, and to be honest, there's just a heck of a lot more formality. Um, so... I mean, the preparation of going through for an IPO you know, is not something that you can wake up in the morning and do it later on. It, it took us you know, months uh, and, you know, and over a year, in fact, to get all of the, uh, our ducks in a row, whether it's you know, the financial uh, controls and processes in place to be able to get numbers out at the speed that we want them to, 
whether it was refining the story in a way that would be attractive for the uh, public market investor, working together with our banker together with our bankers to work out how we would present, present the offer and what size of offering that we would do. Um, I mean, lots and lots of decisions uh, to, to be able to make. And you know, through that process, I think it's, you know, we learned a lot about you know, the differences between public and private. And ultimately, as you say, the you know, the, the, the roadshow and through to the listing itself were you know turned out to be you know I, I would even say in retrospect quite good fun I and mean, it's quite grueling in the sense we saw quite a lot of investors in quite a short period of time but when you've got a story that's evidently resonating you know it's quite you know exhilarating to see that the work you've been on for some time is is you know being you know accepted and appreciated by other people and and now that you've actually launched on a public market um, how would the underlying business change in in the next few quarters what are you expecting to happen on that front um probably less than than you think i mean the you know as a company we've been focused um on you know improving our commercial results for some time and there was a phase where you know what we were really looking at were sort of leading indicators what we call tpv or total payment volume and that had been perhaps the lodestar by which we steered the company and then about you know uh, I'm trying to remember about sort of 15, 18 months ago, I said, look, you know, the era of TPV is over. The era of revenue has begun. And everybody just needed to understand it, but that it's not enough just to sort of mine the raw material, the payment volume that we do. So we actually have to convert that raw material into something that our investors wanted, the revenue, and really to push through to get to getting to break even. I mean, there was something quite poignant about getting to break even um, in the sort of month before we kicked off, or at least to EBITDA positive, before um, the IPO actually went went public. And now, you know, since the company has been focused on these financial results as a metric, the, you know, the, the, the challenge for us is obviously to continue to deliver improving financial results to the, the city and to the institutions who have uh, invested in us, and at the same time, retain the spark of innovation. And so the sort of rebranding of the company for next year is very much around you know, 2018 is going to be the year of innovation. I mean, we have you know great customers with great traction and great rollout and all the rest of it, which is you know, you know, driven our our revenue vol revenue up very substantially. So we're sitting at a sort of 44% increase, sort of Q3 of this year versus Q3 of the of 2016. And you know we are comfortable that we will be able to give you know, pleasing financial results to the city. And I'm, I'm now starting to worry about you know, what are the new products that we're going to be launching that will be giving us substantial revenue in 2019, in 2020. And so we sort of created this program that we say, which is called sort of Boku 2020. I mean, the pun of 2020 vision was just too, uh, too awful to, to miss. And um, we're really sort of driving forward towards that aim. And that's something that happened before we were public and it's something that continues after we're public. I mean, we're accountable to a new set of investors for sure, but um, the basic uh, thread for the company you know, continues in the same way that it did before. We don't want to ruin the thing that our new investors have bought into. Okay. In, in terms of the vision for the future then, so a lot of private companies, perhaps even the, the majority of private companies, have this vision, this goal of, uh, of exiting. You've already achieved that that goal you have exited uh, so what's your vision for 2020 and beyond i mean it's interesting i was wondering whether to sort of refer to this after your initial comment 
I don't think we've exited at all. I see this as an entrance, not an exit. Um, and I think that's really important because we've now got sort of a bunch of new investors who don't want a management that's checked out thinking that the job is done. I mean, I actually genuinely feel that the most important thing um, for, for you know, Boku was not what the initial valuation would be, nor what the pop would be on the sort of first day or in the first two weeks as I speak to you now. It's about trying to create sort of long-term uh, appreciation in the value of our organization over a period of time. Sure that there will be a rotation over some period of time um, of our investors uh, as you know, some investors who have been, you know, uh, who, who have sort of, as it were, invested their capital and now want to be able to take a return will sort of rotate out of the cap table and the other new investors will come in. But we as a company have got to be focused not on, on the fact that we've completed any type of mission. This is a staging post. I mean, I said uh, when we were at uh, AIM at the opening ceremony, I do not see this as, as a full stop or even the end of a paragraph in the Boku story. It's a comma. I mean, it's, it is a, it's a, it's a significant staging post for sure, but it's not the end of anything. It's the beginning of something. And so as an organization, we, we've achieved very little of, of what could be our potential. Um, we know we, we have, it's true, you know, now processed sort of billions of dollars worth of volume. We now are profitable. I mean, and these are significant milestones as indeed was going, uh, going public. But the vision that we set out to achieve of uh, really trying to bring together the mobile network operators of the world into a useful network that could help not only billing, but all types of the sort of the customer journey, whether it's improving sort of retention or acquisition, I mean, those things you know, remain undone. And so it's, 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 a, it's a lesson that I would say to other people looking at this is that, you know, maybe a trade sale of going off into the sunset and leaving it is, the, is what some people want out of their, their journey. But if you focus on the exit all the time, then, you know, you're not going to be building a great company. And it's, it's building great companies that create value. It's not about just being focused on a finishing line. I was intrigued by your comment about uh, an entrance, not an exit. That's a, that's a nice, uh, a really nice phrase. You, you seem to be thoroughly motivated for the future. Uh, the rest of the leadership team, have you had to do anything for the, the top tier or, or uh, the immediate level below them in terms of making sure, to paraphrase you earlier, making sure they haven't checked out now the, uh, um, now the IPO is behind them? Um, the first thing I should say on the entrance, not exit, I can't claim a copyright on that particular phrase. It was when I was uh, gearing up for the IPO, I went and spoke to a number of other um, CEOs who had been through the process and I got that one from Alistair Bathgate at Blue Prism and I, I've, uh, I've used it since. It's been a touchstone as we've gone through the process. So kudos to Alistair for that phrase. As far as the, um, you know, the, the management team or indeed the company more widely, I think that there is a bit of a perception I and mean, you've heard me sort of talk quite passionately about how this is not the end. But I think for some people, you know, it is a significant milestone and people do sort of judge their careers by the point at which they, you know, you know, by these type of, of staging posts. Some people will have been waiting for the point when we go public. I mean, clearly employee shares are locked up. It's not that they're in an immediate position to be able to, to cash out if you like, but some people will. And, um, you know, I think that's, that's only for sort of you know, reasonable and fair and good. I think any organization does need to you know, refresh um, its, its team 
uh, to be able to bring in new ideas and, and not just to be stuck in a cycle of everybody doing things the way they've done before. There will be some level of turnover. Um, I mean, it's not something that, that I'm encouraging. And clearly, you know, I want to be able to retain all of the, the key members of the team. But at the same time, understand and respect that some people may see this as a staging post. But I, I see that as an opportunity, an opportunity to bring in new people, people who perhaps would have been more reluctant to join an organization in its startup phase, but who would sort of really be able to add value to the organization as we continue to scale up and continue to become you know, more profitable. And there, there are different skills you need at that time in an organization's life. And that's something that uh, um, you know, we would have the opportunity to bring on board. You mentioned that in the run-up to the IPO, you sought advice from many uh, CEOs and advisors who'd been through similar experiences. Uh, do you have a particular uh, mentor or, or even several mentors that in an ongoing way are guiding you, inspiring you, helping you overcome some of the challenges you face as a, as a CEO? Um, I've already sort of thought of it as a, a mentoring relationship, but but I I do chat to a number of people, and sometimes you want to chat to people who don't have a dog in the fight. So not only sort of public company CEOs, but there's probably a circle of people that I would go around and have lunch with reasonably frequently, sometimes just to sort of dump a problem, just sometimes to sort of chew the fat. And I do find, I, I, and they reciprocate, I mean, and, and just having somebody who sort of knows what it's like to be the CEO to whom you can then describe your problem. And, and uh, you know, that, I do find that to be an incredibly useful thing. I mean, it's firstly sort of de-stressing. Um, it's absolutely the case that catharsis does lead to a degree of, uh, of stress and you know, telling somebody about, you know, problem shared is a problem halved. Um, but also you just get good advice from that. So I, I've never had a problem with just going out and, and talking to people and I say, the nature of the beast is that people to whom I speak would typically be other CEOs and typically working in other sort of fintech or tech type companies who, who kind of know know what it's like. And, and I think that's important. And, and who's the uh, CEO or business leader that you most admire, whether they come from a tech or non-tech background? Who's your kind of role model as a, as a CEO? Hmm. Not sure if he's my role model, but I think somebody for whom I have a great deal of admiration is a guy called D. Hawk. Who have you ever heard of D. Hawk? I was about to say who no one's ever heard of, but have you ever heard of D. Hawk? Uh, candidly, no. Tell me more. So he was the founder of Visa, and I think he was an extraordinary person because you know, he created a, a, a company or at least an organization which uh, melded together you know, so many different constituents. And it absolutely was him. I mean, he wasn't the person who founded the idea of the credit card, but the idea that became Visa, this kind of self-governing um, membership association. Of course, now things have moved on and, and, and Visa is now at a corporation in its own right. But Dee had huge you know, vision and he had the uh, ability to be able to bring the whole thing together. He didn't do it as it were for himself. He wasn't enriched. He didn't. He, he did have a big ego, but he wasn't doing it in terms of sort of you know, creating sort of huge wealth for himself. He just had a vision about how a new sort of inside-out organization could be created. And I think I've got a. I think he's he's much underrated as probably one of the 20th century's great business leaders in terms of what he he created. 
Sounds like someone I need to go off and uh, do some research on, so I'll check her D out uh, online. Excellent. Well, it's been really fabulous talking to you today, John. Very interesting listening to your experience of going through the IPO. Um, some uh, some great uh, some great insights there, and uh, clearly the business is on the up and up. So maybe I should uh, look at. Uh, uh, selling off my small Bitcoin holdings for uh, for a stake in uh, for a stake in Boku. Well, I, I can't give invest, investment advice, but I know what I'm trying to do. <laughs> okay, thanks, John. Have a great rest of your day. This episode of the Startup to Scale Up Game Plan was brought to you by Alpina Search. Head over to www.alpinasearch.com for advice on scaling your technology startup and recruiting high-impact senior talent.